You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 1 Timothy chapter 1 will be in verses 12 through 17 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read that, pray, and then dive in. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, as he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17, you heard this earlier during our worship um, through music. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord with me in prayer. Father, um, Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this grand vision that, that Paul describes here um, about the gift of grace. The gift of grace. A small word. Grace. Small word with a ton of meaning that, uh, Father, our hearts need this morning. So, Father, we ask that you would come. We believe that you're here now. We just ask that you would come in even a more powerful way over the next moments as we open your word and that your word would come to life for us. That you would help us not to just experience your word in our minds where we understand some things. But we begin to understand your word with our hearts where we draw close to you and know you and the desires and the affections of our hearts would be affected and changed and transformed, not just conformed. The word that Joe spoke earlier. Oh, we just beg you to come and do that work. This is something that is so far beyond my ability or any of our abilities to do. There, there, there's no amount of great public speaking skill that someone could have that would bring transformation to someone's heart. So we pray, Father, that you would take this one little word, the word grace, and that you would cause an ocean full of theology to fill our hearts and our minds this morning. Father, we beg you to do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. John Newton uh, is the writer of the hymn called Amazing Grace. He made this statement, so listen close, and it'll be on the screen in front of you. In fact, it'll be on the screen in front of you for the rest of the sermon because it felt like this statement really sums everything up. Here's what he said. He said, everything God sends is needful, and everything God doesn't send isn't needful. Sounds simplistic, but think about this. Everything God sends is needful, and everything God 
doesn't send isn't needful. Now, I'm not sure if Newton followed that statement up with this other statement or if somebody else has said this, but here's the follow-up statement. That's an ocean full of theology in a thimble. That's an ocean full of theology in a thimble. And that's what I think of when I think of God's grace. The topic of God's grace, uh, it really is so vast that even to just use a word like amazing, I think, seems to fall terribly short of expressing the full experience of it. You experience this one word, this small word, grace. Five letters, tiny little letters. Everything God gives to us and everything God withholds from us is an extension of His grace towards us. Even Job said, God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We live in a world uh, that values the ability and the responsibility to work hard, to earn the things we want. Think about the things that you want really bad. There's a certain truck that just entered my mind that I wanted really bad. I don't have it. I might not ever have it. Think about the things that you want. This world that we live in values the ability and the responsibility to work really hard to earn those things that we want. Here's another statement that just entered in my mind that's not in my notes. That it's not going to be on the screen, so hopefully you can write this down. Um, the intensity with which you pursue a thing proves the value of that thing to you. The intensity with which you pursue a thing proves the value of that thing to you. It's not necessarily that it actually creates value in that thing because that thing is only as valuable as it is. But the intensity with which you pursue it proves how much value it holds for you. Okay? If you write that down, the intensity with which you pursue a thing proves the value that it holds for you. The word pursue is important. Intensity of your pursuit. We live in a world that values the ability and the responsibility to work hard to earn the things that we want. And so we pursue it, right? But here's the problem. The problem is that the experience that we have in life doesn't always measure up to what we value. Our experiences don't always match our value. Sometimes we work hard for something and we don't get what we worked hard for. Ever had that experience? There's other times when we don't do a thing at all. And we get something that we didn't even know our hearts desired so much, right? You work hard to climb the ladder of vocational success, maybe. Sometimes you get what you wanted, what you worked hard for. Sometimes you don't. Uh, you work hard to meet the person of your dreams, someone you want to spend the rest of your life with, and sometimes... We get what we want, what we worked so hard to get, and other times, you don't. <coughs> Sometimes you work hard to raise your kids right. Work hard to teach them how to live rightly. Sometimes you get what you wanted in that, what you worked so hard to get, 
Sometimes you don't get it, right? Um, you work hard to attain some sort of financial stability. Sometimes you get what you wanted, what you worked so hard to get. Other times, you don't. So my point is, as I already said, our experience in life, what we experience, what happens in life, doesn't always match what we value. So if the intensity of our pursuit proves the value of a thing to us and our experience is different than what we wanted, <coughs> then you start asking a question, you start asking yourself, why? Right? Why does my experience not match the intensity of the pursuit and the value? That's then you get a bunch of internal conflict, right? Man, I worked for this thing. I chased this thing. I did everything I could for this thing, whatever that thing it may be. And it doesn't quite work out. And you get the, all this internal conflict going on inside of you. It's at that moment that I believe God really wants to do something inside of you. I've often said, and I wholeheartedly believe, that the Bible teaches us that when we don't get what we want, what we work hard for, what's happening in that moment is that God is trying to teach us about what we truly need. Okay? And, and here's the thing. When we make our wants into needs, and we make our needs into something we do not want, what is that? That's called idolatry. It's just one of the simplest ways you can explain idolatry. It's making our wants into needs and making our needs into things we do not want. And here's what happens. One little word with five letters, the word grace. That word, when you experience the literal grace of God, it, it comes in and it smashes the idols of your heart to pieces. It takes the trash that has infected the temple of your heart, and it takes that trash to the curb. That's what the grace of God does in our lives when we experience it at the heart level, not just know it at the head level. And the result is obvious in people's lives. It's clear. The fruit is obvious. Paul writes about it in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yes, I just saying that. As we used to sing that in kids' church, right? <laughs> everything God sends is needful. And everything God doesn't send isn't needful. So this is an ocean of theology in a thimble. I think it's an ocean of theology in one word, the word grace. That word grace, that's the ocean of theology in a thimble that smashes the idolatry that's deep inside of our hearts. And that's exactly what I think Paul is describing in the verses that we're studying today. What he's done is he's describing his personal experience of grace, number one. He's, he's describing the worldwide experience of grace, number two. And then, because of the weight of all of that grace personally, as well as worldwide, he's totally overcome, totally overwhelmed, and just falls right into praise and worship of the king. Which is that verse 17 that, that uh, Patrick spoke about. Um, this morning during worship, right? The experience of 
God's grace moves, changes, and transforms things inside of us. And honestly, this progression that you see Paul going through here, this is the natural progression for every true believer. The first thing you and I experience is God's grace personally, coming in and making radical transformation in us, right? By grace, through faith, I was saved. I was saved through, by grace, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's a work of God that we would produce good works. So we experience grace personally um, as, as a true believer. And then what happens is our, 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 our horizon gets uh, shifted and blown up. We begin to experience God's grace in the world. We see needs like we just heard and talked about this morning in the world around us. And we see how God's grace is and could be affecting the, the world around us. And then in the midst of that, our hearts are moved to overflowing with worship. That's, that's the natural progression that Paul is describing here that uh, we could apply to our lives. What happens in a believer's life when we come face to face with the experience of grace at the heart level is that our worldviews get transformed from a works-based, me-centered worldview, and it gets radically turned upside down into a grace-based, others-focused worldview. And then under the weight of all that, Every true believer comes full, overflowing with gratitude and praise towards the giver of grace. This is an ocean of theology in a thimble. We think about Paul, number one, and his gratitude for the grace that he experienced personally. Think about the Apostle Paul's story. His story is much like our own stories, not much different. Paul was a hard worker. He got excited when he got close to reaching a goal, and he was passionate about what he believed. Just like all of us, the Apostle Paul had moments in his life where he got knocked off his high horse and had to reevaluate things through a new set of lenses. For the Apostle Paul and for all of us, that new set of lenses ought to be grace. And that's part of my hope this morning, that God would do that for us. I don't know where you're at this morning or what kind of a high horse you came in on or a low horse, but my hope is that grace would come in knock you off of that, cause you to reevaluate things through a new set of lenses. See, at one point in his life, the Apostle Paul was certain he had it right. Anybody else here struggle with certainty, thinking you got it right? Well, I do. He certainly had it right. He was pursuing a pathway to vocational success. Albeit, I don't think many of us want to pursue the same um, vocational success he was pursuing. He says it in the text. He was pursuing success as a blasphemer of Jesus as a persecutor of Christians, as a violent, insolent enemy of God, of the church. There's a thing. Apostle Paul knew exactly what he wanted, and he was going after it, right? Knew what he wanted, going after it, and he's working hard to get it. But here's the thing. What Paul wanted, Paul didn't need. God knew that. Because God knows everything. So, one day on the road to Damascus, if you're familiar with the story, he's got permission letters in his hand from his employer giving him the authority to wipe out the church. That's a lot of authority, a lot of power. Gets knocked off his horse, blinded by the Lord. That's a bad day. Agreed? Anybody want to pray for that day? I pray, Lord, that you would come and knock me off my high horse and blind me if it takes that much for me to encounter your grace. Maybe that's the prayer we should be praying. Here's the problem. For us Christians, 
We're usually praying it this way. God, I just pray that you would like get after Eric, Lord, like knock him off his high horse and, you know, get, get him to go blind this week and help him to experience your grace, Lord, right? Or maybe it's, maybe it's like, man, I wish you'd just like encounter my husband this week and get after him because he's being passive, he's being a jerk. Would you knock him off his high horse and get him to go blind, right? So he can encounter your grace. That's the way we like to pray. Here's the problem. You ought to be praying that for yourself. You ought to be praying that for yourself, right? I don't like to pray that for myself, but I'll preach it that we should. Let's go home and let's do that this week. Let's pray that for ourselves. For most of us, that would have been a really bad day. You lose your job, spouse walks out the door maybe, kids rebel, gets bad news of a life-threatening illness, whatever it may be, a friend dies. Now here's the thing, uh, using this kind of illustration, using this kind of application at this point in the text really falls terribly short, okay? Because all I've done is tapped into your and mine ability to feel like victims, haven't I? Like, ah, man, life sucks, it's tough, this happens, that happens, right? It it taps into our ability to, like, pose ourselves as the hero and somebody else as the attacker. But if you're going to really apply this passage, you need to take it to the next level. If you just go there, you've missed it. You've got something at the head level that doesn't belong to the heart in this, okay? That's a good place to start. Uh, Every one of us does experience days where our worlds get turned upside down. Um, But if you really want to feel the intensity of this day for Paul, we need to take ourselves out of the victim posture. Like, we oftentimes want to see the world as coming against us. A war that i got to fight to stay on top of, right? And we've all been victimized in various ways. We are all simultaneously victims as well as abusers. All of that propensity lies within every one of us. But the... This day that we're talking about for Paul, when he got knocked off his high horse, it might have been painful for him. I assume it would. I've fallen off a horse before. If you ever fell off a horse, you know it hurts. It's a fearful day, too, when that happens, because you're afraid you're going to get stepped on by that horse. I've had that happen to you. Anybody ever get stepped on by a horse? It stinks. There's no fun, okay? So it'd be painful. It'd be scary on that day when you fall off a horse. Uh, I'm sure that's what it was for Paul. But the reality about that day for Paul, this wasn't a day where he became a victim. Uh, This was a day for the Apostle Paul where the real victim, God, who had been the recipient of Paul's rebellion and war against him, this is a day where the real victim, God, stood up and flexed his muscles against a bully. And if you don't think that you have the propensity to be a bully, you might need to go back and pray that God would knock you off your horse and blind you for a moment. Every one of us has that propensity deep down inside of us. No matter how gentle or quiet you are, no matter how loud you are, personality isn't really the problem here. The problem is sin underneath that personality. This is a day where God, the real victim, stood up, flexed his muscles against that bully. And the muscle that God flexed on that day with his enemy Paul was the muscle of his grace. That's the muscle that he flexed. Paul says it here in the text, in those first couple of verses. says, although I had been acting ignorantly in unbelief, I received mercy. We sang about that this morning. Mercy. 
This is what Paul is saying. I've been acting ignorantly in unbelief. I received mercy. In other words, God withheld what I actually deserved, which is actually what I deserve is God's justified wrath and anger against me for my war against him. And the grace of God, the grace of our Lord, overflowed for me, producing what? See, here's the characteristic that should be produced in us if we are true believers, right, who have experienced God's grace. Produce in faith and love for who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ today? You might be tempted to say yes immediately because you're sitting in church or because you've been there since you were 15 seconds old, but can I just ask you, do you love the Lord Jesus today? Just take a look at your life, and what do you intensely pursue? Do you intensely pursue the Lord above all else? Whatever you intensely pursue would prove what's truly valuable, what you truly love. What was happening here is that Paul's real needs were becoming Paul's real wants. See, when the Lord flexes his muscle of grace upon a person, that person gets knocked off their high horse. They're filled with gratitude instead of pride, gratitude instead of bitterness, gratitude instead of anger, praise, and worship instead of all those things. This is why Paul says, man, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, why? Because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service. And Paul was grateful for his personal experience of God's grace, right? And and this grace actually strengthened him and encouraged him in seasons where he suffered and in seasons where he succeeded. And Paul knew, lest you read this text wrong, Paul knew that his appointment to ministry wasn't a result of his own faithfulness, but instead it was a result of the grace of God. We'll see this here in a few minutes when he refers to himself as the foremost of all sinners. He knows it wasn't because of him. Paul knew that he was a recipient of a love that he did not deserve. His previous seemingly good wants, all those things were abolished and crushed like trash and then taken out to the curb by the muscle of God's grace. This is what had happened for Paul. The question is, have you experienced the grace of God personally? Have you come face to face with your own rebellious reflection in the mirror? Have you reflected on your own opposition to the Lord lately? Have you experienced the muscle of God's grace taking a trash out to the curb? Everything God gives to us is needful. And everything that God withholds from us is not needful. That's an ocean of theology and a thimbleful called grace. Second, Paul was grateful for the grace that he experienced worldwide. Think about your experience of God's grace, not just at the personal level, okay? Broaden your horizon now for a minute, not just at the personal level, but the level of the world we live in. Last week we experienced this a little bit as a church family, didn't we? As we met together for that first formal congregational meeting, as we stood up, various leaders and various members standing up and and testifying to the grace of God at work through us in the lives of other people. Those stories are really an extension and an experience of God's grace in the world we live in. And for Paul, as I get to the text, and as I, as I, as I look back at it with you here in a minute, let me set the stage. Uh, for Paul, as he says what he says in verses uh, 15 and 16, like, like Paul's whole heart for the Ephesian church and for her pastor, Timothy, as he's writing to them, he doesn't just want to write just about the Ephesian church or just about Timothy. Like, 
for, for Paul, um, this worldwide experience of the movement of God's grace is about so much more than what happens in one small church. For the Apostle Paul, this is about a vision of the gospel transforming lives to the ends of the earth. Uh, Paul knew that the Ephesians, and, and us too, all of us would be tempted to huddle up in our own little Christian bubbles trying to protect our Christian culture from wolves that we've previously been warned about, right? He just did that, previous verses. And the temptation is to seclude yourself. So I think in Paul's mind, I think a lot of things are happening. I think as he moves outward from the personal experience to the worldwide experience of God's grace, he's, he's protecting the church at the same time. So he casts a grand vision of the effects of the gospel of grace to the ends of the earth. This is what he does. He says it this way. The saying is trustworthy. You can trust what I'm about to say. As deserving of full acceptance. You should accept this completely, not just pieces of it. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's the statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy. There's that word again, mercy. For this reason. Why did he receive mercy? I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You catch the outward feeling of this? <coughs> Paul positions himself in a certain place as the foremost of sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save so that through Paul, God could display himself. God wants to display himself through you. Like that should simultaneously give you uh, an overwhelming joy and an overwhelming sense of um, sheer responsibility. God wants to display himself through you to people whom he's going to save. <clears throat> Paul knew that his personal experience of God's grace was about so much more than his own little personal journey. His story, Timothy's story, the Ephesian believer's story, your story, my story, all of our stories are about so much more than our own little experience of God's grace. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Catch the word sinners. It's not singular, it's plural. Uh, you might be like, all right, belaboring a mute point. It's not mute because it's there. I get really passionate about this stuff. Yeah, I love it. Can I just say, like, the, the, man, the experience of God's grace is about so much more than you and your own little bubbles and me and my own little bubble. It's so hard. We build bubbles of protection. We get busy. All sorts of reasons why we have bubbles. God's grace is about so much more than our own little bubbles. Like this, this passage was one of the driving forces behind the Reformation. It literally drove the Reformers to take their experience, not just head knowledge understanding of God's grace, but their heart-level experience as they were being transformed by God's grace. This was one of their driving passages that drove them out into the world where they shared that experience with other people to the extent that they were willing to be burned at the stake for their beliefs. Now, like, what if, what if husbands and wives in homes were willing to be burned at the stake for stuff like this? 
What if church members today were willing to be burned at the stake for God's grace? How would this radically transform not just your family, not just our church, but what about the community around us? If we were this impacted by God's grace, if we weren't walking around bored with God's grace and seeking more experiences outside of God's grace, what would it look like? I think it'd look like a worldwide revolution. Why do you think this all seems to have started with a bunch of scared little disciples up in an upper room praying? There used to be hundreds of them after Jesus rose from the dead. What? Came down to 120, I think, in that room. What would that have felt like after like running around with, I'd say, at least probably thousands of people, I would assume, were following Jesus around to get downsized to 120? That's how the church was planted. We've walked through some of that in the church, too. Can you imagine what it would be like for the church in America, sorry, living like this today, if we stopped seeing the church like consumers of God's grace only, but as mission partners in the advancement of the gospel of grace? See, Paul saw himself not as the one with all the answers. He didn't see himself as the one who had to fight to preserve his rights. You get that if you read his story. Actually lays down his rights as a Roman, Roman citizen in many ways. Lays down his rights. Why? Well, why would somebody lay down their rights? We Americans don't have an easy time with this. We fight for our rights, right? <laughs> I will too. Don't get me wrong. But, yeah, you know, the picture of the scriptures is quite a bit different than the way we live here in America. He didn't see his role that way. He saw himself as the foremost of sinners. Dude wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You're telling me he's the foremost of sinners? I wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and I still struggle thinking I'm probably one of the best guys out there. Anybody else struggle with that? Start measuring up, lining up. Oh, I'm not as bad as that guy. Come on. Like, have we experienced grace? That's my prayer, really, for this. Um, my prayer is that we would experience this kind of world-changing grace deep in our bones. Like, like I, honestly, guys, I pray that we wouldn't necessarily just give up. I'm not, I'm not calling us to, like, give up or, or shut up or, like, level up or prove up or whatever other upwards you can put together. I'm not, I'm not asking for those kinds of things. Maybe in some way I am asking for us to give up, like throw up the white flag and surrender to God's grace, yeah. I just don't want us to be pride-filled little ego monsters. That's what I don't want. And I think that's a problem for us. I pray that we would be humbled by the grace of God and the cross of Christ, empowered by the grace of God in the empty tomb, to not only look for God's grace at work in our world, but also seek to advance the grace of God in our world. So there are people right down the street from us right now. There are people right across the parking lot from us right now that need a visible experience of God's grace in their lives. The patience of God being displayed through his people. Your co-workers, your friends, your family members, the gas station attendant, the waitress, they all need to experience the perfect patience of God. And there are many people in this city that I believe will come to believe in Christ for eternal life because of your little thimbleful of grace-filled theology. But the question is, what is your, what is your, what's your thimble filled with anyways? Is your thimble filled with grace? This only takes a little bit of grace. This only takes like a mustard seed, doesn't it? 
And number three, roll through this and get us out of here. Paul was grateful for the giver of grace. Uh, years ago, my wife, Christy, um, secretly, secretly bought me a motorcycle. The great thing about it is that she did it while the motorcycle was sitting in our garage. <laughs> oh, I knew it was in there. Dude called me, a friend of ours, is like, hey, can I store this motorcycle in your garage? I, I just don't have room for it in mine. I bought this new one. And I'm like, anything to have a motorcycle in my garage, I at least pretend like it's mine and go sit on it, you know, and start it every now and then and rev it up. I was, sat there for months. Like, months? Secretly, she had struck a deal with this guy, a friend of ours, um, got a, a good price, an affordable price. I mean, up until then, I'd, I'd wanted a motorcycle for a long time. Um, just didn't need one for a lot of reasons. So on Christmas morning, um, she gives me a small little box, and we don't usually give each other Christmas gifts. We just make sure the kids get some. And uh, give me this little box. I'm like, well, what the heck is this? And inside of it was a key to the motorcycle. You imagine how surprised I was? You imagine the feeling that happened inside of me when I received that gift that I wasn't expecting and that I also didn't need and that I also didn't deserve? That's, 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 not even, that's not even 10 million times close to what happens when you and I experience the true, authentic grace of God impacting our lives. Not even 10,000 times close. The grace of God is so much better. And here's the thing. Like, I love my wife more after that. I didn't love her more just because she gives me great things, but... I love her more because God gave her to me, right? Now, who do you think that I love more now because I have my wife? I love the Lord more. And if he took her away tomorrow, would I love him any less? No. No. Because God gives and God takes away. Would I be severely depressed? Absolutely. Would that be a sign that I love God any less? No. But I think if I went out and started sleeping around with a bunch of women... What would that prove? That I didn't love God. Three? And the illustration obviously breaks down at times. Um, I don't just love Christy because of what she gives me. I also love her for what she withholds from me. Oftentimes when I'm being a jerk, which I am often, trust me, I'm probably not even a jerk as much as I know I'm a jerk, so she could probably tell you more about that if you'd like to hear. I bet she'd be happy to have a conversation with you. <laughs> Oftentimes when I'm being a jerk, she withholds her anger from me while she gently speaks the truth in love to me, and in those moments, I love her more. Right? <coughs> I love her for the gift of grace that she is, and I love God more in those moments because of the gift of grace that she is to me. I want you to feel what it's like to receive the gift of grace for real. So this is exactly what Paul is describing in the last verse of our text. He's described the gift of God's grace personally. He's cast the vision for God's grace to be advanced throughout the world. And now he just cannot help himself, right? He can't help himself but to praise God as the giver of the gift of grace. And in verse 17 he says, Man, to the king of the ages... To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Pastor Jimmy John. Well, it could be. Sorry. 
<laughs> I have. I have. Hey, that's not just because that's not like I'm prophetic or anything. I know I ordered Jimmy John's for a meeting later. Now, what happens when you see Jimmy John's? You throw this in as an illustration. What like your stomach goes, oh, because you've experienced the goodness of Jimmy John's. Wow. Yes. <laughs> this is the picture that we're looking at here of a man who is falling head over heels in love with Jesus. That's the picture that we see. Head over heels in love with God. Because he has experienced an ocean of theology in a thimble called grace. As he's experienced the truth that whatever God gives is needful, and whatever God doesn't give isn't needful. Simply put, what's happening for Paul as he's falling head over heels in love with the giver of grace, and his little thimble full of grace is overflowing with gratitude towards God. The question, in conclusion, is have you experienced the grace of God personally? And where are you experiencing the grace of God in the world we live in? How are you expressing your gratitude for the giver of grace right now? Because everything that God gives is needful, and everything that God withholds isn't needful. This is an ocean of theology and a thimble called grace. I want to close us with the words of the song Amazing Grace. I want to invite you to sing it with me. It should be on the screen for us. Sing loud. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. blind but now I see twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved how Oh, 
grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Everything God gives is needful. And everything God withholds isn't needful. I think that's an ocean of theology in a thimble called grace that takes the idols of our hearts out to the curb. Amen. Pray, Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that you would apply this to our hearts now as we remember and reflect on body and blood of Jesus being poured out and broken for us. Father, we pray that you would give us such a deep experience of your grace that would radically transform and change our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from the well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.